page eight, final session in pursuit of happiness. You have endured to the end then. The Bible says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. So you guys are all going to be saved because you made it through, the, through this class, right? So this is our final session together in this important topic, I think, regarding what it is we focus our attention on, more importantly, who it is we focus our attention on as we seek joy, or I'm using happiness as a synonym uh, for purposes of this series, as you pursue joy, happiness in your life. I've tried to make the case that many of us settle for too little, and we set our designs on, on things lesser than God intended for us. And so we set our designs on our career, upon, uh, on, on relationships. Uh, we set our designs on uh, becoming a particular uh, thing in sports, achieving something perhaps in athletics. You can just make a, a long list of the kinds of things that we give our energies and efforts to. And I've made the point that all of them have something in common, and that is that they all uh, will one day fade. They will one day disappear. They'll be gone. It'll be over. And I've really tried to challenge you to think about whether or not it makes sense to give yourself to something which will ultimately not last versus someone who has lived forever and will live forever and with whom you will live forever. And to be engaged in the here and now in the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. The results of which will last forever. So, <laughs> seems like whenever I say forever, it seems like a phone rings like forever. <laughs> Thing. Here's an illustration of forever. It's how long that thing is ringing. <laughs> a relationship with someone who is eternal and then a mission whose results will last in eternity. And we're going to pursue all this other junk? And God has called us out of the world to himself to pursue his eternal purpose in the here and now. And what I've been trying to instill in you then is a desire to say, I want to pursue my joy, I want to pursue my happiness in the one and in the, and in the, um, the mission which alone can provide that lasting joy and happiness. So we looked at the source of happiness. And the source of happiness in part one is God himself and the mission that God has given us. And then we transitioned a couple of weeks ago. If you look at the top of page eight, it says section two, the practice of happiness. Well, how do I actually put this into practice? How do I implement this in my life? And we've been reminded that God has left us here to accomplish his mission, and he's placed you in it and gifted you and me, every last one of us, to be actively engaged in the work that he's doing in his world. Now, last week, I made that case as poignantly as I, as I could. We were in the auditorium, and um, I made the statement very bluntly. That failure to actively engage in the mission that the Lord has given us is sin. You may remember that. And I said that because it's true. This is what the Lord has left us here to do. This is what he designs for us to accomplish, to pursue other things as more important, is then to sin against his purpose for us. So it's absolutely true. But I did have one person ask me, and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad uh, they did, uh, because I... I think I need to clarify 
that a bit. Now, this person asked very helpfully, you know, what if I'm in a phase of life where I just can't give myself to the mission the way I have been able to in the past or the way I would like to in the future? What if I'm in a phase of life? It's a very good, very good question. And so I'd like to just take a minute or two to clarify when I say we're sinning if we don't engage in the mission that the Lord has given us. And let me clarify it this way. I define service this way. Service is where ability and opportunity intersect. So you and I engage in service when we have the ability and we have the opportunity. And when those two meet, then I'm obligated, you're obligated to serve the Lord in that opportunity with that ability that he's provided. So service is where ability and opportunity intersect. Now, as you think about ability, ability includes, of course, giftedness and passions and all of and experiences. I'm able to do this. But it also includes providential factors as to whether or not I'm able to do something. Uh, a person may be uh, gifted to, to teach children or to, or to, to work with uh, even very young children, toddlers, for instance. Maybe they've done that in the past. But physically now, they're not able to do that because they're not able to move the children around and pick them up and all of that sort of stuff. My wife actually fits in that category. Kim has served in every capacity possible in the church her entire life. And one of those that she served ably in and is very good at is, uh, is working with, with toddler-age children. But she's not able to do it now because of back issues. So Kim has the ability in one sense, but in a providential sense, physically she's not able to do that. Now, here's another example. Let's suppose that you are a, a young mother and you've got you know, four little ones at home, six and under. Well, that's going to impair your ability a little bit to engage in certain things that otherwise you would have the talent and the giftedness to do. But you can't do them right now because providentially this is the, your situation in life. So when I say we all need to serve and failure to serve in God's mission is sin, that's true, but it's not sin to be providentially hindered in it. And there are providentially phases of life that each of us go through, which is the other point that I want to make. Service is where ability and opportunity intersect. But then secondly, we all go through seasons or phases of life. And there are certain things that you will go through as a young mother, for instance, that after your children start to get grown, you will now be able to do that you weren't able to do in that phase. So you do what you can whatever you can. And then when you are out of that phase, and you don't want to hurry that phase, believe me, I've got a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. And, a, and, a and, you know, we go, wow, where'd it go? So I just wrote to a young mother this week, and I said, savor that time. And thank God for that time. And serve the Lord as best you are able. But don't prolong the time any longer than you need to that you are not actively engaged in, the, engaged in a mission. The one danger for phases of life is we never come out of them. So I go through the phase, but then the phase has long passed, but I never get back in the game, okay? So I want to mitigate that guilt a bit. I mean, I'm good at making... I want you to feel guilty, but 
sort of my job, but appropriately so. And services where ability and opportunity intersect and phases of life providentially affect our ability to serve. I hope, that, I hope that's clear and I hope that helps. Now, if you look on page 8, we ask the question, how do I know the Spirit's leading? So how do I make decisions in my life that will advance my engagement in the mission that Christ has, has given us? And one of, the, one of the issues that we need to address in, in answering that question, how do I know how and when I should get involved in the mission that Christ has given me? One of the questions we have to answer is, how do I know the Lord's will? So to put it succinctly, how do I know what God wants from me? How do I know the Lord's will? Now that's a whole series in itself, and it's a big topic. But I want to just share with you a few items that relate to this issue of knowing the Lord's, the Lord's will that would help you make decisions about then when and how you get involved actively in the mission that the Lord has given us. So let me give you a couple of ways that people try to discern the Lord's will erroneously. These are wrong ways that people try to determine the will of God, what God wants me to do. One of those wrong ways is what I call feeling-based feeling decisions. So it's a right, something is a right decision for me if it feels right. And we will sometimes use, and if you use this language, you may not be using it the way I'm describing. Okay, I understand that. But often, feeling-based decision-making is couched in spiritual terms saying, the Spirit is leading me to do X. And as you delve into what we mean when we say the Spirit's leading me, it turns out to be feeling-based. I just feel like this is what I should do. Now, the only problem with that is, if you're going to use the Bible as your guide, you're going to look in vain for a feeling-based decision-making model. The Bible does speak of being led by the Spirit. But it does not speak of being led by the Spirit in terms of feelings and emotions. It does not. Romans chapter 8 tells us this. As many as are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. So those of us who are children of God, who have been brought into His family, one of the benefits of that is that we are led, says Romans 8, by the Spirit. Now if you read Romans 8, it's not a decision-making chapter. It's not saying you're led by the Spirit to then determine, should I do this or should I do that? Should I take this job or take that job? It's none of that stuff. Romans 8 is all about the Spirit leading us into, spirit, uh, into spirit-filled living. It's how Christians live. And it goes on to describe how, how Christians live. And the Spirit leads us to living the way the Bible describes. Developing the character qualities that the, only the Spirit gives. We call those the fruit of what? The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So being led by the Spirit in the Bible has nothing to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with emotional decision-making, but it is very often used that way. And people make wrong decisions based on feeling like it's right 
and thinking that it's in turn the spirit leading. So that's one erroneous way, feeling-based decision-making. Here's another erroneous one. I call it outcome-based decision-making or results-based decision-making. That is, I determine after the fact, this is, this is done after the fact, that if it turned out okay, it must have been the right decision. Now, isn't it true that you can make foolish decisions and a gracious God overcomes your foolishness? And it was still a foolish decision. You look back on it, you should still look at it and go, holy cow, why did I do that? And yet, thanks be to God, in His grace, He worked it out. I've known people who have made decisions to relocate, for instance. You're going to relocate, and they made, you look back on that decision, and it was all because they were discontented in their job. They had a good job. They were supporting their family, but they just kept cultivating this discontent. So much so that I've got to find something else. I've got to have something else. Now they find something else. And they move their family... And, 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 and it's a dumb decision. But a lot of good things come out of it. And so after the fact, it's justified as the outcome worked out, therefore the decision was a right decision. No, the decision was still stupid. But here's the cool thing. God is still gracious. Now, one of the things that ought to do is keep you from being paralyzed by analysis, analysis paralysis, when you're making decisions. I'm going to give you some factors in this last lesson that are on pages 8 and 9 that you need to consider when you make decisions big and small. But as you do those, and you should go through criteria like this, as you do those, though, don't be afraid because God is gracious. And even when I mess up, he knows how to work it out. That doesn't change the fact that it was still stupid. You shouldn't go and tell other people to do what you did. But you should praise God that he's been gracious to you in overcoming the sometimes foolish decisions that we make from time, time to time. So these are erroneous ways of making our decisions. What's the proper way to make decisions? They should be mission-based decisions. As you decide what to do in your life, big or small, if you just want the big umbrella, the big umbrella is it should be mission-based. Is what I'm doing advancing the mission or not? Is how I'm using my time advancing the mission or not? Is how I'm using my money advancing the mission or not? And if the answer is no, or I don't know, then we should replace that use of money, that use of time, with something that is. Feeling-based and outcome-based decision-making are erroneous, but mission-based decision-making is precisely what we ought to do. And that's what these four facts that I have for you on pages 8 and 9 all point to. And so I just remind you with these first few, fact number one is that purpose determines life. Our steps are ordered by what we believe to be our purpose. Now that's just true as a general proposition. What am I here for? Why has God left me here? What's my purpose? 
And I should consciously make then all of my decisions and try to order my life in light of that purpose. We've defined it as the mission that Christ has given to his church. So in light of that, carrying out that mission as my, as my immediate purpose, immediate, it means it's, it's mediated, the ultimate purpose is the glory of God. But the glory of God is mediated through the mission of God. So my purpose, mediated through the mission of God, is for me to be actively engaged in what he's carrying out in his, his world. That's my, my purpose. Now my decisions need to be ordered in light of that. That's what we're saying in fact number one. Okay. Now we've seen that, that mission that Christ has given, has been given to, I keep saying this, the mission that Christ has given to, to what? His church. Because I've tried to make the case, both here and for years, <laughs> that the church is the vehicle through which Christ is carrying out his mission in his world, the church. Now, I just want to make sure you're clear on that because as we look at fact number one, purpose determines life. If you don't get that the church is central to that, you could take an individualistic approach to pursuing the mission of Christ. That is, he's given me individually a mission, not us collectively a mission. And if you do that now, if you believe your mission is individual, now get this, then the mission is carried out wherever you are. If you believe the mission is individual, then the mission is carried out wherever you are. So let's give some examples. If I make a decision to relocate, Maybe some of you are contemplating relocating. I don't know. What, what criteria are you going to use to decide, should I, be, should I leave? Should I move? I'm suggesting that should all of our decisions should be mission-based. Well, if the mission, though, is individual, then if I move, the mission just follows me. But if the mission is, is not individual, but rather church-based, then you've got some other things to consider. Don't you? It's not just I go and the mission follows me, but rather I'm in the mission through the church and now I need to determine if I relocate, what does that mean for the mission at the church? What does that mean for the mission through the church where it is I'm going? How many times have you heard of people relocating? And you say, where are you going to go to church? I don't love that language, where you're going to go to church. Because church is not just a place we attend. The church is people engaged in a mission together. So betters, so where are you going to serve the Lord in the mission? But you got a church? No, not yet. We'll have to find one. Now notice the priority scheme. I decided to move. Then I'm going to determine how I'm going to engage in the mission after the fact. But if you believe it's individual, then the mission just follows you wherever you happen to, happen to be. Bible-believing church there or not, whether there'll ever be a Bible-believing church there or not, you've decided to do it for whatever reasons. Okay. So purpose determines life. 
And the immediate purpose that we've been given is the mission of Christ through his church. And so our steps need to be ordered in light of that purpose. Since many have not given conscious thought to their purpose, the manner in which they live their lives displays aimlessness that results from such a perspective. Believers have been instructed regarding their purpose, and therefore they do not, no believer needs to drift. God says, I've created you for my glory. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If that's all the Bible said, then it would just be pursue the glory of God wherever you are. But as we're going to be reminded in a moment, God says my glory is being pursued now through the agency of, of the church. Now notice I've got that word drift in quotation marks. You guys see that? Christians don't need to drift. Here's why. This is one of the, I think, worst maladies that can be inflicted on humanity drifting through life. And what do I mean by drifting through life? Picture teenagers in a mall, wandering aimlessly through hallway after hallway, store after store. Why are we here on this Saturday afternoon? No particular reason. This is just where we're killing time and hanging out. We are literally drifting from one hallway to the next, drifting from one store to the next, or picture a Friday night, any Friday night in the summer. And just, you know, if you had a front porch, if anybody had a front porch these days, instead of not wanting to see people and having the back thing, but if anybody still had a front porch, then you would see cars go by with teenagers in them, piles of them. And where are they going? Nowhere in particular. What are they doing? Drifting. They've been invited to five parties that night. And their answer to all five of those invitations is, quote, I might stop by. Why? Because they have no schedule. Their whole life is one big drift from one mall, one car, one party to another. Now, we're laughing at teenagers. What's really sad is when adults live their lives that way. And their lives just drift. And God has said, I have given you a purpose. My purpose is for you to bring glory to me, but I haven't left it vague. This is how you're to bring glory to me. Fact number two, God has given you a mission. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Jesus said in Matthew 28, his final instructions, make disciples, baptize them and teach them, wait in the city until you receive the power to begin this. They do that. In Acts chapter 2, when the power comes, the church begins. The mission and the church go forward hand in hand. You do not have the mission unless you have the church. There should be no such thing as a churchless, as a missionless church. You can't have the one without the other. So God has said, your purpose is to bring me glory, but the mediated way that happens is through the church. And then fact number three, he's prepared you to accomplish the mission. Now, if all the stuff that I've been talking about for all these weeks is like even remotely true, and God has actually called you out of the world to himself and into his mission and gifted you for the mission, 
then you have a stewardship responsibility to use those gifts for the purpose for which they were given. So I have quoted there Ephesians 2 and verse 10, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. We're his workmanship. Greek word, translated workmanship, poema, English word poem. Some translations have work of art. We are his work of art, or we are his craftsmanship, or we are his masterpiece. NIV says workmanship. So all of the junk now that you've gone through is all part of the workmanship. All the good and the bad and the ugly are all part of the masterpiece. And he's now going to use that in his mission through his church. He's gifted you, but he's also guided you. In your experiences, difficult and joyful alike, in order to make you who you are, to use you in his mission. So you not only have a mission in general, God's prepared you to accomplish the mission. He's prepared you by your experiences as part of his work of art. And then he's given you gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Romans chapter 12. We've got four gift lists in the New Testament. Those are three. And then the, other, the fourth gift list is in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. And so you have these four passages, each of which list different kinds of gifts that God gives to people. Now, what some have made the mistake of doing is taking those four passages, counting up how many gifts are there. There's 20. Making a list of those 20 gifts and then saying, now your job is to find out which of those 20 things is yours. And that's not what those passages were intended to do. One way I know this is, you know, the Roman list in chapter 12 of Romans is different than the Corinthian list in 1 Corinthians. So if you gave the church at Rome in the first century a gift inventory test, they've only got a few of the 20. Right, that's a rip-off. I didn't even know there was these other gifts. And see, God's point wasn't for you to know what all these gifts are and to give you an exhaustive listing of them. It's simply to say we're all wired differently. And God has made us all differently, and he's given us all different experiences and different passions and different abilities. So the idea isn't for you to take these 20 and say, which of those 20 is yours? The idea is for you to understand that you are uniquely wired by God to carry out his mission. He's prepared you for the mission in your experiences, in the giftings that he has provided for you. And he has then further placed you in the mission. God has placed us in the mission. providentially, sovereignly placed you where you are. So here you are. Somehow, through a bunch of circumstances, maybe even some dumb decisions in the past that God has worked out, here you are. 
God has brought us together at this time and at this place to carry out his work. Now, before you contemplate changing that, you need to think about whether or not your decision is going to advance the mission or not. The way you make decisions is whether or not they're going to advance the mission. God has placed you here. He may move you on. He's got lots of ways to do that. He may move you because, you know, you've got health things and you, you have to go to a warmer climate. So he moves people that way. He may move your job. Your job may transfer you to another place. you now got to go. He can move you that way. He can move you by offering training for you in the mission in some other place. And you go take that training and it's going to help you advance the mission. Matt and Erica are here. But they were originally from Ohio. They've been saved out of that. <laughs> this is redemption. This is the grace of God bringing them north. But, but why? why? Why up here? Well, Ohio State fans are up here. Because the mission's more important than Michigan-Ohio State. Came here to go to seminary. Moved for the mission. Relocated to be trained for the mission. Some of you may do that. Relocate. Or there may be some min ministry that needs you and your talents more than we need you here. Do you know so, some of you are in this church because you came from churches that were larger than ours when we started to come and help advance the mission in a new church plan. What a beautiful thing. But in every one of those cases, that's God providentially moving you or you're making a conscious decision to move, relocate for ministry. Now that's just applied to where you are physically located. But then there's all the other decisions of life. Do I spend this? Do I use my time on this? Do I invest my talents in this? And the question in every one of those is, will this advance the mission of Christ through his church? God has placed you in the mission. We all got here different ways. Here you are. Here we are. And we're going we're gonna to carry out the mission together until God providentially moves us, which he has done with some of us. He will do with some of us. A sovereign God can do that anytime he wants. But what you don't do is decide, you know, I just like Hawaii better than Detroit. Well, me too. You know, that's a no-brainer. I just like Hawaii better than Detroit. I think God is calling me to Hawaii. Now, there are people who need Christ in Hawaii. And we need churches in Hawaii. I know a pastor in Hawaii. I hate him, but I know him. <laughs> you know, and every time he tells me, it's always 70 and sunny and all that junk. And I'm sweating every Sunday while I'm trying to talk to you guys. I hate him. But there are people who need Christ in, in Hawaii. The mission, the mission may call you to do that. The mission may need you in a particular place. And if that's a really neat place, great. But you don't do it just because it's a neat place. 
You do it because it advances the mission. And every one of our decisions is made, big and small, based upon whether or not it advances the mission. God has placed you where you are. Am I making too much of that? Paul's talking to some philosophers in Athens, Greece. In Acts chapter 17, and he says to them in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26 that, quote, God has determined the times appointed for them and the exact places where they should live. So God determined that he would place me in Michigan. I'm going to ask him about that. But that was his call. He's placed me in Michigan. If, if I'm going to, if I'm going to change that, it's going to be for the mission that he's given me. And God could do that, of course. He does it all the time, but he does it in ways like I've described. Not just you and me, and, and forgive me sort of, but not just you and me selfishly putting our agenda together and then putting Jesus on top. So God has placed you. We use the word call often to refer to God's special work in one's life to direct him into a particular vocation. For instance, we talk of someone being called to the ministry. The, word, the words call and vocation are related. The Latin word vox means voice. So one is urged to hear and obey God's voice or his call to his vo vocation, his calling. And so when we talk about vocation, that's what we're talking about, calling. And so what many of us do is then say, well, I'm going to find my calling in my career. And if you were here for the first hour, you know what the Bible teaches about that. Your career was not ever intended to be your fulfillment. It's a means to the end of carrying out the mission. And you've got to see your career that way. Your career is not your calling. Your career is a means to help you pursue the calling that we have. And everyone, contrary to popular notions, all Christians are actually called to the ministry. And the only issue is how and where we will minister. The word minister in the New Testament is, is serve, servant. Ministry is service. Synonyms. Our individual calling involves, now get this, how God has wired us. Discuss that above. But also the circumstances in which he's placed us. So with all of that, if it is true that God's glory is being pursued through the mission of his church in this age, if it is true that God has gifted you through all of, prepared you through all of your experiences and then the gifts and abilities that he's provided for you, if that's true, and it is, and if the church is the vehicle through, that, through which that's to be channeled, then the conclusion is what I have on page 9. And that is all of our decisions should seek to advance the mission. When I say, you know, our decisions, I mean all of our decisions. How do you spend Friday night? I mean, really? The Mud Hens game? I saw you at the Mud Hens game, Brown. How's that advancing the mission? Well... In, in all honesty, I, I, I happen to believe 
that being together with God's people and cultivating relationships actually helps advance the mission. That's why we provide things like that. But not because the mud hens have become my idol. They're in last place. <laughs> the tigers are in first place. And they're not my idol either. And if you take a brother or sister or family and you go out and do with your family and you enjoy the tigers, the mud hens going out together as our family does because my, my family is a mission field to train my girls for this mission and we together are carrying out this mission as we cultivate relationships at the Labor Day picnic tomorrow, those are all to be seen through the prism of us together strengthening ourselves to carry out the mission. So when I say decisions, it's all decisions. How do I spend Friday night? How do I spend my money? Where am I going to invest my talents? They are all to be made to advance the mission. Decisions regarding how I pursue service and where I serve should intentionally seek to advance the mission. So I may seek training to enhance how I serve, or I may change where I serve to a more needy area. But in any case, we should never sacrifice present ministry for potential ministry. Do you all know what I mean when I say present ministry for potential ministry? God's given me a ministry, but I just, note, notice the language, I just feel like I should do something else. Okay? So I move to Ohio. No. Okay, Ohio. So, so I moved to, to Ohio, and I hope I, I hope I plug into a church when I get there. I just need a change of scenery. I go, I just feel like this is the right thing to do, and I hope it'll work out. God in his grace may work it out. He's a gracious God. But that's not the criteria for us to make our decisions. If God has given you ministry, you pursue that ministry with everything you've got until he moves you. He can move you. And he does it all the time, but he'll do it for ministry and mission purposes. Summary, then, of pursuit of happiness. It's God's will that will make you happy. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember that if you will give your bodies as living sacrifices, then you will prove and attest what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. God's will is found in doing what he has commanded, how he's wired you, and where he has placed you. Now, we're going to end right at noon. But as we do, we've gone through these weeks together in how to pursue happiness. Happiness is pursued in a relationship with the true and living God, pursuing his eternal mission through his church. So that is a paradigm a model that is different than most of you have ever heard in your life. And so you've just been drifting through life, making choices based on whatever you feel like doing at the time. So it means reevaluating for most of us. Reevaluating what's important to me, what's my priority, how do I use my time, my talent, how do I use my treasure? Am I investing it eternally? And if the answer to that is no, or I've got plenty more to invest, and I don't just mean money, 
more of myself, more of my time, more of my abilities to invest in this rather than other ancillary stuff? If the answer is, I haven't been pursuing it and aligning all of my decisions and my life around the mission, then we've got to rearrange that. We've got to reprioritize that. Now, this is the last time I'll be calling Ken out then. I've done it four times during this series. Two times he's been here. <laughs> the other two times he's been serving in other areas of the building. And there he is. Some of you have already gone and talked to Ken about how do I get put in the game? How do I begin taking the talents and abilities God has given me and plugging them into his mission? If you haven't done that, if you're not using what he has given, time, talent, and treasure for the purpose for which he gave it, see Ken, that's our job for us collectively to shoulder together and move the mission forward. Last comment. We're celebrating 10 years this month. God has given us a marvelous foundation upon which to build. If he allows you to hang around here for another five to ten years, forgive the language, but look out, baby. I'm serious. God's going to allow, God is going to allow us to build on this foundation with this group of people to move his mission forward in the lives of people we haven't even met yet. He's got many people in these cities, he told Paul. So go and preach the gospel to them. Go and reach them. We're going to reach them through numerous ministries carried out through this church. Numerous ministries. Starting next Sunday at 9.30, I'm doing the whole full service thing that you heard me talk about. There are all kinds of ministries for this church to carry out to make contacts with people in the communities around us. And it's going to require all the gifts and abilities that are represented in this room and beyond to reach those people. But it's going to be an exciting, exciting journey. It's been great for these last 10 years. It's going to be even greater the next 5 to 10. That's, I honestly believe that. But it's going to be because we all believe this is the mission to which God has called us. Okay? So get in the game. If you're not fully in the game right now, talk to Ken, and we'll move forward together. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these weeks together to look at what you have for us to accomplish in your world, in the here and now. We have the promise of eternity with you. And Lord, we thank you for that blessed hope. We have absolute confidence that if you call us home this afternoon, we'll be in your presence. Thank you for that assurance, that security that it affords us. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. Be not afraid, you told us over and over. We know that we're in your hands and our steps are guided by you. But Lord, therefore, help us to live fearlessly in the present world. Help us to be willing to, to leave it all on the field, as it were. The field of endeavor that is the mission of Jesus Christ. You've left us here to carry it out. You've gifted us. You've placed us. You've brought us together. Lord, we look forward. We so look forward to what you're going to do in and through us in the coming years. Thank you so much for what you have done and what's been accomplished. And we look forward, Lord, to using our gifts and to using our time and to using the treasure that you've entrusted to us to advance your mission further in the lives of people whose hearts you are preparing even now for the gospel of Jesus, who we are going to reach through numerous ministries of mercy, showing them the compassion of Christ, giving them the gospel of Christ, 
seeing them reconciled to their God and seeing them grow in you. Oh, Lord, how our hearts burn to see that advance and to be used of you in that process. Lord, we are going to then give ourselves. We resolve to do that. Help everyone here to to resolve that afresh and anew. And then, Lord, we look forward to when it is all done, being able to, in eternity, celebrate what you've accomplished through us. And hearing your approving voice saying to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord Jesus, go with us this week as we serve you in the places that you have placed us, in our families and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. And we ask you to bring us back safely next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.